0: next chapter podcasts gray's anatomy the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers will teddy survive will joe and link finally find happiness together meredith returns along with fan faves like arizona you can now stream every episode of gray's ever on hulu and new
1: episodes next day Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9,
0: 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry also available in Zero Sugar so grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild Ooh. The 500 The 500 Ch- us down through that 2012 edition so it ain't nothing to new hundreds more to go and in need of a friend the king of these for angelo talking the 500 until the end talking the 500 until the end with my man jm on the 500 talking 500 until the end for the next i'm the cuter from my tribe called quest and when i quest for the buddy i don't miss for my jimmy wants nothing but the best the best oh my
1: god man this is it a song about a dick who knows we talk about it the song is buddy it's by de la soul from the 1989 record three feet and rising it's also ba ba boop Number 346 out of 500 on my podcast, of 500 with Jam. I'm the Jam Slam. You are my fans. You're called the Flea's Army. Don't be me. Thank you, everybody that watched the live stream of the goddamn Comedy Jam on Mint. We're going to be doing it every month. Uh, It's going to be incredible, and we're going to keep growing it. Comedy Cellar was rocking. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Go to joshadammyers.com for all tickets. I will be in Cancun, November 3rd through the 6th. I'll be at Skankfest South in Houston, November 7th. I will be in Edmonton. I will be in Vancouver. I will be in Texas. Again, I think in Plano. All in December. And then I got all my 2022 road dates coming up. joshadammyers.com. Catch me at The Stand and uh, The Comedy Cellar. Every night of the week here in New York City, guys, check my Instagram at Josh Adam Myers. Come, 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 come. And join our Patreon, patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Who knows how long I'll keep doing this. The only way I'll keep doing it is if you give us money. Because it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and I am broke. Am I? Am I, though? We need your money, guys. Five dollars. That's all we need. Five dollars. Join the Patreon. De La Soul. That's our group today. Do you love them? I think you do. A lot of people have been asking about this one. A lot of people have been excited. It's really cool. It's really cool when you finally get to listen to an album that you've heard a lot about. And this is one of those records that I knew, me, myself, and I. That was it. And last week, we had Blaine Kapatch. This week, because of Blaine, we have our guest... Brian Posey, a guy that I've wanted to sit down and talk to for a long time. You know him from the Sarah Silverman program, from HBO's Mr. Show with Bob and David, from his incredible podcast, Nerd Poker with Blaine Capach. He is not only a thrash metal fan, but this dude knows hip hop. And this was a fun, 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 till my daddy kicks my boys away. Yeah. Nah, 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 nah. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500. Listen free on all platforms anywhere you get your pods if you listen on apple leave us a review come on follow me at Josh Adam myers on all social media and go to my website joshadammyers.com for all tickets clips and everything that you're gonna need email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com follow the facebook group run by crazy evan it's on facebook i don't know where it is but follow it and for all things 500 go to our website the 500podcast.com well nothing left to say but here we go we're number 346 out of 500 We're with three feet and rising by The day la all So how do we start? I feel like the, the best way to start this Is that uh, Brian, since I have known you The entity that is you From Mr. Show From from everything that you've done The Sarah Silverman Program And seeing you online It has in my head, Ben, you are a metal god. <laughs> you are a dude that bleeds Ronnie James Dio to Deicide to Metallica to Black Sabbath to fucking. De- I'll throw Deftones in there, oh, yeah. and yeah, and and so when we had Blaine on last week, and Blaine, I go, "What's he goes?" What's the next record? And I go, "De La Soul," where uh, we really can't find anybody. Uh, and he goes, Oh, uh, well, you should ask Brian because Brian loves hip hop just as much as he loves rock. And I swear to you, my mind was blown. So please tell me, tell me your journey with hip hop because I had no idea. Yeah. Well, with, with metal,
2: it's just I started talking about it on stage and then I became that guy. But it, uh, I didn't keep hip hop out of the loop for any reason. I just, uh, um, you know I liked music and yeah. in the 80s when that stuff started to happen uh I liked it just as much as like the new metal I was hearing and um so it started with you know the obvious uh you know Grandmaster Flash all that stuff early yeah and Run DMC was probably the first rap tape I bought um and do you then, remember which uh,
1: one yeah uh, Raising Hell? No, before that, King of Rock Okay, mine uh, was Raisin' Hell One of the first albums my parents bought me Yeah,
2: and then um, So by the late 80s I was working at a record store I was work. Well, I was working at Tower And I wound up being their rap buyer for a little while And I had long hair I was the metal kid I was the skinny <laughs> kid wearing Metallica t-shirts And I had hair, you know, down to my tits And, uh <laughs> <laughs> but I was the rap buyer because it was suburbia and uh, you know, who else, who else was going to do it? And all the other kids, you know, there was uh the trust of and kid that, that he, he bought all the reggae, you know, records for the, for the tower. I worked at, he was their buyer, you know, there was the classical kid and uh, there was other people buying, ordering metal. And I always was like trying to help them because they were getting some of that wrong. But when that hip-hop thing came up, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I I know my shit. And I knew my shit. And I still did they do. have
1: did they have everybody for like, I was like, dude, Todd just quit, so we need a new uh, rhythm and blues, dude. And then we got Tony, we're training him on adult contemporary.
2: Like every kid had their niche, had their thing, and you know, and then the <laughs> older managers knew what we all were versed in. But then you also had to know, you know, like how I got hired was just basically knowing where Pink Floyd went, you know, and that kind of yeah, thing yeah, yeah. record store, you know, <laughs> knowing that it wasn't a dude. Yeah.
1: It's under pain. It's under pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, so you're this, you're this rocker dude. You got long hair down to your tits. I'm assuming you're wearing a flannel shirt and probably some combat boots. You dress somewhat like Judd right. Nelson from breakfast club. Right, right, right.
0: Or, and, or and I was
2: also kind of in the skate culture. So I would wear the vision streetwear shoes and, you know, but in the Stussy pants, yeah. But it was, it was, yeah. And, uh, they, and I, there were kids. That there was a there's a guy that I'm still friends with. Uh, I think he later became a cop, and he still likes metal and rap, and nice. still gives me shit for being the rap guy at our store and how weird it was because <laughs> he kind of <laughs> wanted that job too.
1: I mean that's the hippest job, dude, to be able to
2: buy the fucking D nices and the EPMDs, yeah, and-, and that's exactly what I was ordering, you know. Like uh NWA was huge at the end of the 80s there. And then yeah. of course we were getting, you know, uh the pop stuff and we were selling, you know, MC Hammer out. Can play by, yeah, buy pallets of that stuff and and uh, you know, um uh fresh Prince. What year is this? So 88. Oh, wow. Around there. And then I also worked. So through my last day job was also a tower record. So I I moved uh, back to my hometown of Sonoma and worked at their tower. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't the rap buyer. But I was still like I was putting up uh, posters for Tribe Called Quest. And you know, when that in 91, and then that was my last day job.
1: So you went from – because this was – we're hearing you say this. I mean, how how old are you? Because even though it's 88, like how old are you around that time? You're like 14, 15, 16, 17? Uh, 21 and in, in, uh, 87. Okay, yeah, so, so. You're, you're in your 20s. All right, so that's – yeah, because that was basically around the age that – at least where, where in my life, where it was like I felt like I could listen to all the music. Now, when I was in middle school and high school, it was like I don't know if it was just a racially divided area, or at least in my school, but it was like you couldn't like rap and you couldn't like rock. And if you and if you liked rock, then then the rap kids were like "fuck you," and if you liked rap, then the the rock kids were like "you're lame." And it was so for me because I was such a metal guy, Brian. Growing up, Iron Maiden posters all over my wall. Guns and Roses changed my life. If I said on this podcast a million times, but uh, I remember when I all the the black kids in my in my sixth grade class were the coolest, and I was like, God, I want to hang out with them. And I was like, Well, I got to get rid of all my rock albums, and I got to buy NWA, and I, which I did, kind of like I loved I loved Public Enemy. And I remember I gave away all my shit in seventh grade, and I was like, I'm into hip hop now. And and so I guess in your 20s, you know, you're you're a little bit more comfortable with who you are. So you can walk in both worlds. I mean, did people like call you out for being the rock looking guy that listens to rap.
2: You know, I had gone through such a dorky period in high school and also a period where I didn't have a ton of friends. And the only friends I had were the metal kids and the punk kids. Yeah, that uh, I kind of didn't care what other people thought way early. You know, like I also was into Marvel and in DC when you were only supposed to be into one. I like Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, back then too, you know, yeah. like, I just liked what I liked and didn't give a shit. You know? And if you liked me, that was cool. But I had been so like shunned by the cool kids at that point that I was like, I'm just doing my own thing. And then at Dude. Tower, Towers is just full of those kind of kids. That's all they yeah. hire are those kind of kids that are doing their own thing. You know, they yeah. want attitude. Like the fact that I was fired for attitude was like, you know, <laughs> I, I wore that as a badge that I, was, right. I was too surly for tower records at one point, you know? <laughs>
0: Were, so you like really, were you judgmental? Were you judgmental? Part of it
2: is not caring
1: what other people thought of me, you know. Like sure, but did you? But did you? Were you judgmental on like kind of like in high fidelity when the guys would walk up and ask for Ooh. Engelbert Humperdinck, and you're like, you go, yeah. really? Like, That's <laughs> but more so towards pop. If you were into Michael
2: Jackson or anything that was massive, then you know I just would do yeah. my eyes. Yeah. If you were buying Garth Brooks, you know, when I was working <laughs> at the other record store in 1991. Yeah. Uh, just go again, you know. <laughs> Where's your love truck? It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a shithead kid,
1: you know i mean that's gotta be but that's like the biggest fuck you to be like you said you're you're the loner you're hanging out with the metal kids and now you have the power you can yeah. be the judgmental one because you know pink floyd you know all the music you know the hip stuff while everybody's listening to you know it's like it's like you know it's like i know the Walkmen and everybody listens to to coldplay you're like all right well the Walkmen rule and but nobody really knows so you're the cool guy that listens to the right band. so so hip-hop so 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 what did you love about it compared to rock i mean did you find similarities or what was it that, that was really a little attracted bit you of it,
2: and then when things started to meld i really liked that too you know like when i was the first guy to be totally psyched when the anthrax started to go hip-hop and then when they made the public enemy co- connection i was Bring like the noise you know, this is my shit like this yeah. is something that I, I, I like both of these things. You know, it was yeah. already, I had been, been a fan from PE from the first record and the same yeah. with Anthrax. I had, I was uh high school DJ at my my senior year. I'd kind of turned things around and uh, I'd become friends through summer school uh, with like the cool kids. And so I got to be DJ my senior year with this other kid. He was a, the head of the wrestling team and all that. So we would actually play Anthrax that first record, Fistful of Metal. Oh. Uh, so I had my cred there, you know. But
1: yeah, but yeah. So what were the what were the artists that were sticking out to you? You mentioned Public Enemy. You know, you mentioned some of the people that you bought, but like, who were you really connecting with? And well, and how I they actually- Go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I liked the political stuff. Like I liked it all. I liked Public Enemy. I liked lyricists. I like guys like LL Cool J. I liked uh, you know his first couple of records. He was crazy. He was so good and yeah. so young. And and then uh, and then when Tribe came out, Tribe called Quest and what we're going to talk about later, Dayla. When that stuff came out, I was you know i was kind of that kid i was kind of a backpacker i was smoking a lot of weed and and uh the that kind of music appealed to me too because it had such a different feel from and i liked the chronic too but which was another That's... weedy type hip hop record but yeah i think i liked the more uh maybe because it was more social and less – less dancey and that kind of thing. That's, that's what drew me to bands like tribe and black sheep and, and uh, all that stuff at the end of the eighties and the early nineties.
1: Yeah. Everybody you just mentioned in that, in that group was like, I mean, tribe called quest is still in my opinion is, has put out, you know, Three of the best, you know, hip-hop records I've ever heard. Uh, Midnight Marauders will will never leave my rotation. Yeah. It gets at least a play once every six months. It's just music I can put on in any situation. Same Day- for me. And like the- when Wu-Tang no. came out, and I know yeah. we're getting later, but but I'm
2: trying to th- think of everybody. Well, like, so when I was working at Tower at the end of the 80s, Too Short was huge, too. And I like that stuff, too, but I really, I, I really attract uh, – I gotta say, Public Enemy was the biggest at the end of the 80s because they were so, those records were so perfect. Those, the first three records they did. Yeah. And then that, the fact that they hooked up with the Anthrax. And then right behind would be, you know, uh, even that first Tribe record oh, with Beneath Applebaum and, and, uh, yeah. you know, um, Left My Wallet and all that stuff. And they appealed to a white kid in a way that the other, Records, you know, I I wasn't like the wannabe, but it was like, these guys seemed cool with, would seem cool with like a Tower Records long hair listening to their records, you know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't feel alienated by their music or, you know
0: yeah way
2: was a little scary at first it was like very, I don't know if these dudes would like me
1: <laughs> I, I mean what was the album for was it forty miles and running or or something the or 100 miles and running the it was the one right after the breakthrough record I remember listening right. to that and and like even though I was like, god I love this so much I just was like, I don't know if I should be listening to this you know <laughs> right. but a tribe called quest. And and even Wu-Tang, you know, because Wu-Tang was my big, my real big, you know, my break. That was where it was like, I was such a grunge kid and I was only like Stone Temple Pilots and, and ACD, not ACDC, well, yeah, ACDC and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And then Wu-Tang comes out and I go, this was made for everybody. I feel like this is a group that everybody can enjoy. It's it's not like they're talking about their existence in in New York and what they've been through and their hardships, but there's something about the lyrics and the image and just everything about them that it's all-inclusive. And and Tribe had that. And oh, yeah. and even the, the band we're talking about today, De La Soul, which I, dude, you know, truth be told, the... Uh, you know, and I hate to say this, I'm embarrassed, but it's like I knew me, myself and I, and I've known that for years. And the name De La Soul has come up and come up and come up. And I remember actually, it's funny when I had Michael Rapaport on the podcast uh, and it was it was on a day, which we'll get into in a minute of why this record wasn't available on streaming. And he was like talking to two of the members about it and i was like oh shit like you know de la Soul, and it's like you just this is a band that you you know and see on the list it's like how important this record was it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper
0: Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: And, you know, so, 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 so it's 1989. How did this record make its way into your ears back then? Well, I was still at Tower. I was still at Tower in Sacramento.
2: And I remember playing it with the other guys. I I lived with three other Tower Records employees. Nice. And so, like, (laughs) the party would just, you know, the store would shut down at midnight, and we'd go home and just keep smoking and, you know, creating music. And uh, that was one of those ones that it was me and my roommate Dana both found it that first week and went, this is crazy like, listen to this, listen to these samples. And that, that also back then, when I think that was like, when they were starting to, bands were starting to have trouble with sampling, but that record was so full of samples and yeah. so full of uh, samples that were recognizable instantly, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, the big Lou Reed one, and what was the, uh, you know, red in the hook. But, um so we would do listening parties. Like we would go back to the house and then play it for the other guys. I remember all of us listening to it kind of out of my room because we all had pretty good stereos for dirtbag guys, you know? Like, yeah. That were just living off mac and cheese, but we were also all such big music fans that we had- A Macintosh, you know, right? We were had, like some
1: really My friends were things. buying
2: cars when they were in high school. I was, you know, accumulating a decent stereo, like a technique's yeah. turntable and all that. Mm-hmm you know, JVC amp and uh, so we all would play our shit for each other. And I remember definitely doing that with that first record. And then even being as a road comic a little bit later, this record's, you know, sticking with me and me playing it on the road a lot.
1: Yeah, this is, you know, this is what's just so funny is because you're looking at the mo the really notable records that are coming out in 1989. The list I got in front of me, you've got Paul's Boutique, you got, uh, yeah. Big Daddy Canes. It's a Big Daddy thing. You have two live crews, nasty as they want to be, and in this corner uh, by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Then you, dude, you have like gang stars. No more Mister Nice Guy, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Seminar. Looking back on that now, like, 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 how do you feel? Like so this. Pause album...
2: Boutique in this record were the the records for me. Those were the ones oh. that immediately. And then Pause Boutique. I'm like, why is nobody else getting into this? Because this record people got into, uh, three feet high, you know, and then their their record, their second record was kind of theirs. Their Paul's Boutique, De La Soul is dead, because that was the record that I like even more than this one. Uh, Yeah, that's in top ten hip hop records of all time for me. De La Soul is dead, but it would be up there with Paul's Boutique because Paul's Boutique blew my mind. You know, again talking samples, and then them coming from being that first record that was just kind of this party record, uh, you know, Ill, um, licensed to Ill. So then yeah. that second Beastie record for me, and I'm working at the record store, and we've got stacks of them, and no one's buying them, and we have that that cool-ass vinyl, if you know, the, the vinyl, like, folds out to, like, it's like an eightfold. Yeah. And showing that, that that street, that area in Brooklyn, and I'm going, why is no one getting this? Like, no, you know. Are you guys just playing this like nonstop, like at the Tower Records, just almost like trying think, but to. No, but but still everybody that listened to it, my friends and I were like, this is the coolest thing. And, you know, it's not getting any radio play and it's not, you know, blowing up like that first record did.
1: No, I, you know, it, what's, what's funny about that, you saying the connection between Paul's Boutique and this, it, it's really, it does kind of make sense. Because, I mean, Paul's Boutique, for the Beastie Boys in particular, after coming off of – because that's right after License to Ill, right? Yeah. So, License to Ill, and then you have Paul's Boutique. And Paul's Boutique is so different and so sample-heavy and such a different vibe for Beastie Boys. But it still sounds like Beastie Boys. The the way they rap, they're still doing that trading-off vocals. This record – and it's funny that you're the guest – It's almost... I've never heard an album like this. I I, I mean this sincerely. Like, even with the interludes and the minute-long songs that are just them fucking around, making fun of each other. um, Love that stuff, too. Yeah, Prince
2: Paul was kind of the master at doing those sketches. But I feel like other bands had done that before them, but that record was the one where it's kind of known for the... Maybe... Because it linked the whole record together, you know. Yeah. I mean they use they use sketches so much that it's it's almost like a Monty Python episode where it completely... I was gonna say it's to Mr. Show. It. It, well, i was gonna
1: say it's mr show of bob and david to stream of consciousness I, dude yeah I you worked wanna, on it of course i, I said it though. check
2: my own shit no but it's <laughs> dude
1: it's like it's almost perfect that you're the guest because it's like it starts here and then it takes you on this journey and then the other thing that really sticks out more than anything besides the stream of consciousness is that this might be one of the most positive hip-hop records i've ever heard in my life like you can't walk away from this feeling bad i mean i've you know just you know with with life and the way the world is it's like i put this record on not expecting to come out of it like oh my god i feel like i just read an eckert tolle book like this is very positive right and that is so different than everything that's coming out in in 1989 and and from what i think that was
2: part of the appeal too you know and then the fact that i was smoking and you know it was a great record to get high to you know to have on as the soundtrack while you're baked you know with yeah your other oh my god yeah
1: this is dude i remember one time we were listening i was we took lsd and we were listening to wu-tang and i was just like you gotta turn this off i was like i am about to have a bad trip i'm going to the dark side turn that off and then my buddy's like let's put on evil dead part two i was like not a good idea Not a good idea, dude. Can we watch Babe, Pig in the City or something? Because I'm about to freak out. This record, I I mean... I tripped
2: on killer clowns from outer space. Oh my god, how yeah. <laughs> were you ever the terrible, same?
1: Terrible. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, that movie would scare the shit out of me sober. Yeah. Um, so you look at the contrast. This is what I'm saying, is that you have the gritty, the the violent rap lyrics, you have public enemy who who is is, you know, very political. We have to change the world, but in a very aggressive way, even with, with everything about them, even with having uh, Flavor Flav to kind of break it up a little bit, he but this, song, this yeah, yeah no one hundred percent, one hundred percent. But this album is often labeled progressive. Is that is that what you think? Kind of when you listen to this, yeah. And I think that was the
2: appeal. I mean, that like you were saying, you hadn't heard anything like this, and our minds were blown. Me and the other kid that were really into hip hop in my you know my room between my roommates, and then the other guys that were less into it. blown away too you know they were like oh my god we all knew this was a great record like on first listen you know getting it home getting it out of the plastic and going oh my god and just walking through it um you know the intro is cool and then you get to magic number and then it's more you know more sketches and i don't know yeah you hadn't heard anything like and they're instantly likable yeah, you get their uh, personalities come off so well and it's crazy that you're listening to vinyl there is no visual but you you know you're drawn into this world and it is positive and you know.
1: Which is funny and that at you the said end visual. In
2: the 80s we kind of needed that if you no. were listening to cuz metal was all like the thrash metal I was listening to at that time. Yeah, Megadeth bands like that—they were all saying, "Dude, the world is ending soon. <laughs> like shit is bad. Like in thrash metal, if you were listening to it, and then you put this record on, and it's like, nah, eh, it's not that bad, <laughs> you
1: know." You know what's funny? I gotta say, as you talk about thrash metal, I—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm in New York right now. I went to go see um, Slipknot. On Sunday of last week, and with their music being so intense and just like you know, because like I feel like in every song there's one point that Corey goes, "Get the fuck up!" and then it's it's, and it was great. It was great. But then you look around that audience and everybody's so positive and they're getting out that aggression. And so, yes, the the lyrics are dark and yes, the music is intense. But it's like it's it's almost like the dude, it's the exact same vibe. If you went to and and Justin, I know you'll probably because I know you're a big fish fan. It's like it's like thrash fish, you know, (laughs) and that's cool, man. That's that's cool. But but you mentioned something earlier. About image, and I think hip hop is i mean for the most part has always been concerned about the artist's image, and with De I, I really feel like they're not so much about their image visually more than they're just focusing on and emphasizing themselves musically and i, I don 't know I, I mean is this kind of like a super Power uh, within this group that kind of makes them stick out. The reason that this record is number three forty six out of five hundred. I mean, obviously, there's there's got to be something. Say it again about the visual thing. I feel like because I feel like this. I feel like the group. It's whereas like hip hop is you know like you look at Ice T and I'm I'm just saying this is in the eighties hip hop. It was all about the cool gangster image. You know what I mean. And Public Enemy is like you know aggressive. And like we are in your face and we are gonna change the world with not only the music, but the power that is behind the music and the message that we're saying. But but Dela, it's like some you won't even know that you're standing next to the members of De La Soul, because they're just, it's focused on strictly the music. Is that almost like a super secret? I think secret so, power? but
2: yeah, but but if you got deeper into the record, I remember, I remember thinking of them as like the coolest college kids ever, you know? Like to me, they did stand out as having different personalities and that it was all about positivity and it was all about, uh, you know, things that weren't connecting with me, the Afro-American thing, because I didn't know that yeah. experience at all. But they seemed like the cool, less in-your-face version of that. You know, they yeah. weren't screaming at you like Public Enemy.
0: Well, they're almost but, doing. They would doing
2: learn that. something by hanging out with them, and you would, be, yes, you know, you would be cultured yeah. by the end of the hang.
1: You know, yes, you would. And they, but I think they're not. They're not. They're they're screaming positivity, whereas Public enemy is screaming revolution. You know what I mean? Right. And there's that is fucking rare. Because I mean, Tribe Called Quest, yeah, is probably one of those groups that definitely sticks out as like. You know this, like bring you in and like let's smoke a joint. Let's, so let's when did that first record come out? I feel like it's all right around the right same time, right? Justin, will you look that up for us? Find out when the first uh Tribe Called Quest record came out. Uh, uh, I feel like that's it's about like I'd say like eighty-eight, eighty-nine, maybe. N- I mean, when did Low End Theory come out? Because I bought Midnight Marauders. I think I was twelve, thirteen. So I'd say that came out in ninety-three. I feel see, like the first one. You know, what's funny, this record. So I, I tell this story a lot, but I used to be in an all Jewish hip hop group called De Shekels. and uh, <laughs> we we made seven albums in about three months uh, in my in my my parents' house, in in my bedroom, in my parents' house. And we have one of our records. Which it, which is Sergeant Buddha's Smoky Bong Club Band. And I'm telling you, Brian, this is the most low quality shit you've ever heard in your life. It's like we have a beat disc of thirty of thirty beats. We just put it on the CD and let it loop. And it would always be off beat after the 30-second beat would would go and it would it would it would just get off beat. And then we had a Casio keyboard and we would kind of like try to, you know, like make like a little like, you know, we we put the melody on top of the beat and then we'd rhyme using uh like the microphone held right up to the casio keyboard speaker and with the beat disc playing and we just hit record on the boom box and that's how we get it and on our record sergeant buddha i feel like this was the exact sound we were trying to go for the way this record with the interludes so as i was listening to this i was like dude this is like if we just would have had a good producer we would have done this record man this is what we were trying we were trying Brian, to Prince do. Paul, get behind this. Record. God, Prince <laughs> Paul. I don't know what you call Mister Prince, Mister Paul. <laughs> I think this is a Prince Paul record. I, I think he <laughs> really shines. These beats, I mean, on this record, are the star of it. Is I'm not just talking about you know the you know the the songs that are three four minutes long. Like I said, those minute long songs really stick out. I mean, even though there's not, a, they're just saying sometimes just making, like I said, making fun of each other. It just feels like this is like they gave Prince Paul just full range to say, to play whatever you want, sample, whatever the fuck you want. And we will follow you. Do you have any thoughts on that or anything that sticks out? No, I agree. And I mean, it made me a fan. It made me not only
2: a fan of of La, but it made me a fan of Prince Paul. And then it's like, what else is he going to do? And, you know, following his production into other bands and then, I like bands that are influenced by him. Like he didn't produce that first Farside record, but it feels like a Prince Paul record because it's yeah. so full of, you know, it it's connected the way this record is, you know? No, totally. Um, did you find out Justin when that, uh, when that I came looked out? It up. It's 90. It came out in April in 90. So this is before that people's instinctive. Yeah. I was reading so much about it too, that I knew that uh it was native tongues and i already knew that there there was like these other bands involved i don't remember does anybody else show up on that record i don't think they have any on this record yeah on on you have you have q-tip you have q-tip is yeah you have the
1: jungle brothers
2: oh yeah so that makes total sense
1: yeah, it's this is because this really is uh, just an extension of everything that Tribe Call Quest was going to go on and, and do, because, I mean, the second you hear it, like you said, the non-aggressive lyrics, the lyricism, the love, 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 love. I mean, Christ, uh, you know, Tribe Call Quest had a had a record called the love. I think it's the the Love Supreme. Right. Or the love. Yeah, the I love. love yeah, that. it's like everything they've done is about love. And it's like De La Soul. It just feels like this is just a part of all of that. And, but and- there was also this attitude, too. I don't remember what song
2: it comes off in, but they, they, they're they funny hitting on women on in the sketches and the songs. And then you also get the fact that, yeah, we look like college guys. We look like three smart dudes, but we'll also kick your ass. Like, that comes off in this record of, like, we might have a gun. We'll definitely defend each other. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. We're yeah, going to yeah. go down fighting. We're not just soft nerds that was like you get that by the record you know like in the video they look kind of nerdy but if you listen to this whole album you know they're kind of badass yeah they they, are like each guy can rhyme and then they also aren't soft
1: well you know like they're about
2: love but they're not soft they're not
1: pussies no you know yeah and then that also leads us into i think why This album is not on any of the streaming services because they are badass. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this, Brian, but I have it all pulled up. So De La Soul had been attempting to bring projects like Three Feet and Rising and De La Soul is Dead to streaming, but in in 2019, the band's former label, Tommy Boy, made moves to bring the albums to streaming with a deal that would have seen the group receive only 10% of the streaming royalties. De La Soul asked fans not to listen to their albums on streaming platforms and Tommy Boy retreated on its plan to upload the catalog. Then Tommy Boy Records was acquired by Reservoir Music in the $100 million deal. Uh, they said we're thrilled. Uh, said the group's uh, Dave, uh, Tragoy, The Dove. We've come to a deal between ourselves and Reservoir to release our music in 2021. Our catalog will be released this year. We are working diligently with the good folks at Reservoir. We sat down with them and got it done pretty quickly, actually. Um, it, it's It's just like insane that they would i mean be offered this deal that would only give them 10% of the streaming royalties and for them to then tell their fans like listen do not listen to this record like we could get like it's 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 we're getting ripped off this is something that you know we 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 put our our, our sweat and our blood into and and to get 10% of something that, that the streaming services and, and Tommy boy is going to make so much money off of. I mean, it's right. ridiculous. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Or like, well, yeah,
2: I think they were sick of it because so many bands, I know, I don't know their whole story, but I know tribe had sold so many records and made hardly anything because of the initial deals they made. So I don't know what their initial deal was, but I could get totally being at this point in your life and your career being so sick of the music business that any other way of getting it to your fans is the right way to do it. You know?
1: Yeah. Um, It says here the album and the reason why it's took decades. And I think you mentioned this, they were uh, mired in legal issues with Tommy boy stemming both from the extensive use of uncleared samples, a field that was the unexplored wild West at the time. And the group's contract with the company, which a member signed when they were teenagers. I mean, yeah dude you're a teenager and somebody offers you hey man we'll give you two hundred thousand dollars to have this record deal like you're gonna take it little yeah, do you know they that they're just fucking it. you yeah yeah i mean it's the story of uh tlc man tlc when when uh crazy sexy cool came out they filed for bankruptcy and that album was one of the biggest records of that year you right. know like okay, i know this is a weird question but you've, you've been in the business for a minute uh is have you what's the biggest you've gotten screwed uh if you don't mind us if telling us i don't know if you've even got one uh well
2: i've had things go away i mean at a certain point what your lawyers and your agents will tell you all the time if you're as you're developing and trying you know trying to get your price up is the only way you get your price up is if you're willing to walk away and a lot of times i'm just not willing to walk away like things come up (laughs) And people will know it, you know. Like the the person offering me the job knows I really want the job. So, I mean, that's where it, you kind of just take it in the chin, where you know you, your price net doesn't go up because of that. Um, yeah. And I haven't had. I've had. <laughs> I got a pretty. <laughs> without going too far into it, I have a lawyer that I've actually had other people go, "Dude, your lawyer's a dick." <laughs> like here, it from but you other want people's that. legal, I know, and I do like it, like, yeah, to, to a certain extent, but uh, I've heard from other people's legal departments going, man, your guy, you know Marvel, which is notorious for being uh legal uh, their their people did not like my lawyer when I was yeah. working on Deadpool, and yeah. kind of the reason why I'm no longer at Deadpool, <laughs> but <laughs>
1: We like, we want Brian. We can't take. We can't take Frank Cohenberg. This motherfucker is yeah. insane. Well, that's what if you I want. Went back though. to
2: Marvel, they'd they probably ask, "Hey, are you still with so and so?" Yeah.
1: Wait, but did that I mean, but obviously he's working in your best right, right, right. interest. I mean, well, and that's and-
2: what he. He wears that on his sleeve. He's one of those guys going, I'm a pit bull because you need a pit bull. And, you know.
1: Dude, this business, you know, it, it's so shitty. You know, it's like, well, we just want to perform. We just want to work. Just like La just wants to make music and get it out to all these people. And then it's all the people behind the scenes that fuck it up. Oh, yeah. For all of us, well, whether they, it's
2: a comic book company, a record store, or I mean, a record company, a movie, animation—they're all. I mean, well, they're all looking out for themselves. Really, it's, yeah. it's all that, you know the company doesn't give away deals and isn't going to you know survive if they give everybody the best deal that they could possibly get. They they survive because they give you the worst deal that they could possibly get. And, yeah, and, and still have you do business with them you know yeah
1: yeah
0: welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute what's the name of that podcast that's ax to grind uh and right now
1: you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it right down to the shaking microphone and all
0: (laughs) and my name's bob and my name's patrick and usually we're joined by tom tom's the best tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate...
1: Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that, uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them
0: down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast.
1: Hey you, do you have any plans this year? 020-D.com um,
0: soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app.
1: I always feel like every executive is just, you know, sitting in a room and they'll just throw out any idea. So they feel like they earned their paycheck, even if their idea is the shittiest idea uh, ever. I mean, goddamn comedy jam on comedy central. It could, if they just did it the way that I created it, it would have fucking ruled. And listen, I mean, I did I've a steel a
2: panther show at comedy central, you know, that yeah. with, with the jackass guys. And I mean, I have a million things that if I was able to run it completely, it might, it would have been a different story, but
1: sure. What's yeah. the funniest, what's the funniest note uh, network execs ever given you or like on a project that you were just like, Oh my God. Well, I had one
2: on my walls uh, on my wall forever because it was one, uh, one of my first jobs was at MTV and it was a, uh, um, it was like a game show, like uh remote control, it was called Trashed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really my first job in LA and uh, my man or uh, my um, producer of the show brought me in and asked if, if there was a way to make AIDS funny. <laughs> she wanted to i she was coming from the right place like she wanted to make uh aids just acknowledge it talk about it and really talk and you know talk about how you get it and that kind of thing knowledge about it but then also make it funny like she wanted to be educational like that was her whole thing like but i'm like we're on a game show where we trash people's surfboards because they didn't get you know the kid rock question or whatever whatever (laughs) that was pre-kid rock but whatever the dumb question was you know like what what day la soul song is this because we did have them in the you know on the show trashed and i'm just like how do we make aids funny and i wound up doing a bit about her on stage and then her seeing the producer was in in the audience at like the melrose uh improv while i'm talking Mm -hmm. shit about how do you make AIDS funny? Like you don't. You just don't.
1: Yeah, I think in song, in song, <laughs> well, AIDS, yeah, later be funny in song. Yeah, later on, <laughs>
2: South Park proved me wrong. But yeah.
1: But it's like, it's like, well, It's all I'm giving you. It's like, well, yeah, right, I'm protecting right,
2: I mean, two or 93. I was like, I, I have no idea how to do that. And no, you can't.
1: You can't. <laughs> not, not, not that early. 2021. We found many, many ways, but. And then Mr. Um,
2: Show, we had, we, we put our own, we had our own card on the board saying at one point we had done too many gay jokes and too many Hitler jokes. So it said no gay and no Hitler uh, on our board. <laughs> If that was our own.
1: Like we got to move on. We've got, we've hit those pots. You've hit your quota. I got to <laughs> ask it. I got to ask it while we're talking about it right now. Because I mean, me and my producer uh, Jeremiah Tittle. I mean, obviously, it's it's still to this day. I think the greatest sketch show that ever existed. It influenced uh, how I write comedy. What I what I love about comedy. Everything about it. And being that you were such a huge part on it, and you worked on every season, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you have a do you have like a uh it can't get better than this moment on Mr. Show like a moment that just sticks out to you it was like man this it's this was Yeah there were a
2: lot but um yeah some of my best memories Bob Odenkirk is my favorite person that I've ever worked with in the business and David yeah. David's right behind him but Bob because Bob really um helped me mature a lot and then uh because I was a jackass when I got hired there and I was just not a good dude. Like I was really <laughs> cocky, and I was, you know, cranking out sketches, and I got a lot of sketches on the show. But he also taught me to be a little more humble, and you know, and but uh, and then there was some, and it also made me a better sketch writer. But one of my favorite ones was we had ordered food, and uh, we'd been writing all morning in the same writing room, all the whole group of us yeah staff and it's i think it's it's season three and um he uh, and i are hanging out bob's on the couch i'm on another couch and we were riffing he was riffing like he was the substitute teacher and i was riffing like i was every asshole kid ever you know just smarting off to him and just being you know just a dick and being sarcastic and we came up with that sketch of uh going up your mother's ass
1: yeah yeah, yeah. but if
2: we weren't gonna write a sketch we were just sitting there waiting for lunch and everybody else had left the room and was like eating in their rooms and he and i got our food but we're still like fucking around and we're just riffing yeah. and then everybody came back from lunch and we're like hey we got a sketch and they're like what the fuck like <laughs> you-, <laughs> you can't just sit here for 45 minutes and not create like and that's one of my favorite memories of of the show was just that he and I were giggling and and like, we're just being jackasses with each other. And then suddenly we're like, Oh, this is an idea. This is like a funny thing. And we wrote the sketch immediately when everybody came back, Bob's like, okay, here it is. And, you know, take
1: notes. We started banging it out and had a draft. I mean, that's incredible. That's such a, that's so funny. It just how, I mean, that's, that's what happens. That's, that's 90% of comedy is, you know, even with stand up, it's like, you'll be talking to your buddies, you'll say something, they'll all laugh and they'll go, that's a bit. And then you're yeah, like, no, oh shit, sure. I've got a, I got a 15 minute joke that I can expand on now out of just, just you bullshit with my friends? We wrote a lot like that
2: in the early days of me and other stand ups where we would go to coffee houses in San Francisco and just sit there for hours. You know, a lot of it would be you kind of, you know, quiet in your little notebook but then you go hey what about this and then yeah. your buddies you know would tag it and make it funnier and you know uh, it's a bad thing then also, like- parts of comedy
1: also, but that's also you're working with, I mean, you know, I'm because I'm friends with a few of you guys. Uh Tom through the podcast. I, I hit it off with him, Tom Kenny, uh, Karen Kilgariff, I, I've known for years and is is a near and dear friend, Mary, Lynn, and I mean, you have a collection of some of the funniest people working. And then all the guys behind the scenes, like Dino, and I mean, it's just like you have. You have like, did you guys know while you were doing it, like how, I mean, important this sketch group was, or, or was it just like, we're just fucking, we're like, we got another season. Holy shit. They're letting us do this.
2: I did. Um, because I feel like I came into it as a fan, uh, you know, I'm such a fanboy. Still. I talk about, you know, all the other, all the things I'm nerdy about, but I was super nerdy about comedy too. And so I loved the Ben Stiller show and I saw the potential of those guys. So when I first moved to LA and we were doing sketch live sketches and they would ask me to do shit, Bob and David. And I was like, yeah. these guys are the two smartest guys out here. And and immediately I was like, anything they want me to do, I'm doing, you know? And yeah. so the first season, they wrote themselves. It was just all four episodes and they wrote everything themselves. And then they had us all act in it, you know? Um, but I remember going to a table read and hearing all four, all, all four episodes up on their feet. And they're like, any notes? And we're like, no, like all of us. We're the people that wound up being hired as the writing staff the second season. It was me and Bill Odenkirk and and Dino. Yeah. But yeah, just going, this thing's amazing. You know, I knew that the first, just hearing it. And then as we started to shoot it and we're seeing these sketches come back, I'm like, it's so silly. It's so smart. (laughs) It's smart and stupid, like almost in the same second. You yeah, know, like, yeah, like Python was like, and SCTV, some of my favorite shit on SCTV is when when you would be like, how dumb is this? And then I'm, I'm also crying. And then how smart is the fact that they got there for, you know, whatever it is.
1: I think it was just I think it was perfect timing. I really do. Like you said, you're coming off the Ben Stiller show and like the 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 comedy from that, which is which is in a sense like you it's I can see some influence because Bob worked on that too. But there's there's something about maybe HBO being like you guys just go at it. They know how hip the alt scene is in San Francisco and in LA and places that it's really starting to build. And you have like all these these great people together, which to bring it back to this record. You know, I, I kind of think that it's it's like you get these guys and Prince Paul, and they're like, "Let's do something. Let's do something different." Because what I've got the little well, breakdown that's the other about
2: thing, not to interrupt you, but you you said it yourself earlier. We put our own notes on a Mr. Show. We didn't get any notes from HBO. They totally left us alone all four seasons, and that's part of why we didn't do seven or seven or eight seasons because they weren't involved so by season four they were like fuck it and they let us go you know yeah so yeah yeah yeah. i think if they had had their hands in the pie a little more maybe they would have been more you know because new york new york wasn't even aware of us because we yeah. were out here in la so we were talking with the la executives so like the new york hbo executives weren't aware of us and that's why you would see like real sex would be on friday night in our spot Yeah. Kind of near the end. And like people (laughs) like our final season, you had to really look for our show. Oh yeah. Because they were moving us around because they just didn't give a fuck and didn't know what they had. And then we got two Emmy nominations, you know, the last two years. But I think they didn't really even care about that. We already had Sopranos that are final year. Sopranos yeah. was their new show. And, you know,
1: they did give you like in their defense, though, they did give you which was the reason we became so obsessed with the show. They did do uh, two Fridays in a row. They they played every episode starting at midnight. And we I set up my VHS and I recorded that. And that tape got passed around right, and passed right, right. around like well, and like thank a joint God
2: for stoners and college kids that passed our show around. I mean, thank- I mean. It's, it's really, really true. Do. Like, we knew that then, you know, because yeah. that was the only way we made it to, like, we did a Comic-Con one of the first times i done anything on the other side. And that was, we got invited to, must have been, 98 Comic-Con. And, and uh, it was all because of tape trading more than HBO.
1: Oh, for sure. Dude, that's because that's what you do, man. It's like you literally, we would sit around and we'd be stoned. like, we won't watch something. I'd be like, oh, have you ever seen Mr. Show? And they'd be like, no. And dude, it was the fucking sketch that you guys had where those the guy comes in, he's like, I got a video of oh, yeah, this yeah, and yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. No, you like made fun
2: but, of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He,
1: yeah, you guys basically parodied yourself, and that's what was so brilliant about it. Also, and I think, and to bring it back to De La Soul, I think that is what is cool about this group because they're not the biggest group, you know, out there when they, when they come out, but there is something, you know, like you said, working at the record store, man, it's like you feel cool knowing about a band that no one else knows about, and, and Mr. Show falls into that. That was a show that, that the people that knew it the people that were at, when you guys went on tour to the, you, I remember you guys played, uh, yeah. fuck, in D.C. You did, I want to say, and I, I was going to keep saying, for some reason I want to say the Library of Congress, but you did someplace in D.C. that's pretty epic, uh, Constitution yeah. Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constitution Hall, and it's like the people that were in there were all just like, fuck, yeah, dude, G- Jeepers G. McKay Scrapers. from
2: Fugazi was at that show. No shit. Yes
1: he oh, came I'm backstage David. and
2: me and David Cross were losing our shit because we both I like minor thread and, and later got into Fugazi, but yeah uh, I think Cross was more of a Fugazi guy and and uh we both were like you know and he's like uh and boy, and now over us. You guys, right? like he's yeah. so happy to be backstage <laughs> meeting David and you know the tall jackass from Mr. Show Me. <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs> So he was like, it was super crazy moment of us kind of fanboying off each other.
1: I mean, it's, 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 it's brilliant, man. I, I, I listen, I st- I mean, there were nights, even when I was living in LA during the pandemic, where I was just like, I just need to fucking laugh. And I put it on and, and, you know, I'd fall asleep to it and it's just, it, it holds up. It's crazy how, how well it still holds up. And, and, I'll, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm in this position now, because it's like, you see people be able to have that much control over their product and how funny it can be by thinking outside of the box that you're like, Oh, this, there's a reason why they're still talking about this show. And then there's so many seasons of Saturday night live that you're like, Oh, I forgot that that, right. They were even, they were even doing it that, yeah. I mean, I mean, because like we, we said the comparison, this record, Mr. Show. Now, a lot of people call this record the Sergeant Pepper of hip hop, which I would call Mr. Show the Sergeant Pepper of sketch. Is that good? You like? Yeah. That? Okay. I'll do you think it. that? Do you think that that comparison makes sense for this record? Yes.
2: Totally. Uh, yeah. The, the and also the fact that. Sergeant Pepper wasn't the Beatles' first record. So they Beatles built to Sergeant Pepper, but yeah. De La Soul was like, look at this. Like right they put out, the game, out of- a genius record as their first record. Yeah. You know, and it might be their best rec- I but I love like I like I was De La saying so I love dead. De La Soul's dead for the reason that it's a little darker, and then by the nineties. I was a little bit darker than I was in the eighties, you know, things yeah. were just happening <laughs> life. And, and I was maturing and, and that record was more mature and, and I dug it. I, it got me through some shit. Like in the early nineties, I lost both of my grandfathers in the same month. Wow. And I was actually hunting for one of my grandfathers cause he had walked away with Parkinson's and uh, we just never saw him again until they found him. Oh, wow. But I was, Driving along with De La, remember, I remember that record in the, in uh, Sacramento while I'm hunting for my grandfather in this record, being dark but also fun. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, I don't know how they could do that, but they did that. No, I, I, dude, it's... That it's, record, it's, you know that, um, I think Millie pulled a, I think it's called Millie Pulled a Pistol on Santa. Do you know that song? I don't. It's on De La is Dead, and it's one of the best. I always loved storytelling music, and they were really great at that. You know, whether it's Cher or Dolly Parton or any kind of, you know, where, where there's a story told in the song, I always yeah. love that. And, uh, and, you know, metal does it a little less, <laughs> you know, will warrant – Uncle Tom's cabin let me tell you a story (laughs) (laughs) there's not a lot of story songs in metal but there are some in hip hop and Millie Pulled a Pistol on Santa is this one that's insane if you don't know the song you gotta you gotta check it out after i will
1: well there's a lot i think on this record there there is a bunch of stories i mean we we, we don't have a shitload of uh, time left let's let's talk about some of the tracks well first of all let me give a look some stats about this on the billboard chart three feet and rising hit number one on r&b hip-hop number 24 in the top 200 this is by far uh La's biggest commercial success uh uh, but they did produce a bunch of quality records after this, one of them being uh, DLSO is Dead, which you fucking love. And then I thought this was cool. In 2011, Three Feet and Rising was among 25 albums chosen as additions to the Library of Congress's 2010 National Recording Registry for being cultural and aesthetical and also for its historical impact. Uh, coincidentally, uh, steely dan's album aja from which three feet and rising samples was also named to the registry that year i think that's pretty fucking cool um i mean let's let's like i don't know if there's any tracks you want to talk about the one the first one that really got me was uh magic number i mean this is probably one of the most positive hip-hop songs i'd ever heard and it just it just feels good and it's like something you could sing to kids which i know you know they came up with magic number uh, through. Hold on, let me see. If I might have got a little off track. Is it a cover it's, of that? It's from the Show right from uh, yeah yeah yeah.
2: School yeah schoolhouse rock.
1: rock, but yeah, but that's like their 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 opening track is fucking that. I mean, that's fucking adorable. Can you keep a secret? I love that little sketch where they're they're whispering like embarrassing secrets about each other, which I thought was hilarious. You know, it could have gotten a little bit funnier. I wish they would have been like, you know, cause they were like Prince Paul, you know, likes money. I was hoping they'd be like, Prince Paul has eczema. Um, they didn't, but you know, um, anything that sticks out to you? Like, I mean, there's, I, I could go just the hits, but. Oh, as a, I'm, I'm looking myself. Yeah. Even like take it off
2: is a little sketch that is burned into my memory. I hear, it, yeah. you know, just take it off, you know, <laughs> uh, ghetto thing. You know, I didn't live in a ghetto, but, but no, I lived in the suburbs of Sacramento.
1: But I love that song. And you talked about, bro. Right, you talked about storytelling, and then this is like, "Do Tread Water" is basically a children's story, very surreal children's story, set to a hip hop beat, featuring a crocodile sporting a daisy in his hat, a monkey that can't peel his banana because of a bandaged hand, and a fish swimming in the bathroom sink. And I found this, and I love it. Despite the nursery rhyme lyrics, po- what is it, Postanus? Mm-hmm. Postanus? told Melody Maker that the track has a serious side to it. It's saying that when you're fe- this is Listen this how fucking positive this is. It's saying when, that when you're feeling down, when you feel like you're drowning, just keep going. Mm-hmm. That's how it was for us. We had to keep striving towards a goal, which always seemed to be shifting around. It's a push song, and even if it sounds like we're talking to little kids, they're really talking... To everybody And Finding Nemo Stole from them Yes (laughs) Keep swimming Who's that Brad Bird Who directed that Brad It's probably Brad He's got his hand In everything Uh, You know Potholes in my lawn One of the hardest beats On the record I loved that Uh, What else did I really like Let me see Oh Fucking Say No Go Where they're sampling I Can't Go For That By Hall and Oates Again I I sounded like I'm from Philadelphia Right there Hall and Oates. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, did, I can't yeah. go for that. I can't go for that by whole notes. Um can't yeah, dude. And then buddy I mean, was funny,
2: cause isn't it about buddy? Isn't buddy about your penis?
1: Where is it? Which one are we looking at? <laughs> Buddies, let me find. Do I have that fact? Buddy. It says, Oh, so so this is by the way that you mentioned this. This is probably one of the greatest songs on the record. Might be one of the best ones I heard on this. Uh that was new. Uh, every verse is legendary. Uh, q-tip rules. And dude, I want to play this real quick. Do you have uh Justin? Do you have the clip for Buddy? Uh play uh one minute in because I thought how creative this shit is. And when I quest for the
0: buddy, I don't dress. For my Jimmy was nothing but the Let's stick out Jimmy and see what we can catch. Stick him up, stick him up, Jimmy. Next won't be needed unless Jenny wanna get right to the flesh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so look at that girl over there. Get that woman. Oh, oh, get my the yeah. yeah. that oh, yeah. oh, woman over there.
1: Yeah. I won't lie. What I love about that are those little, like, drops throughout the whole song and how creative that was. It's It really is... Different than everything that I'm That I know that's uh, those artists that we Mentioned earlier that are are Big into hip hop I mean this is This is a totally new thing
2: Well you know what I think Sets it apart I think the intention It feels like a headphones Record and a lot of Hip hop wasn't at that time a lot of Hip hop was to be played in your car As you drove around the Mall or at least if you're a white kid In the suburbs you know Mm-hmm. in your Volkswagen, you know, with your giant speakers, too short, all that stuff. It's more like parties and 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 this wasn't. This didn't feel like a party record. This felt like a headphone record right away.
1: Yeah, this is this is Pink Floyd. This is like listening to the record I did with, um, with fucking with Blaine. This is a Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's different. It's it's psychedelic. It's psychedelic. This is psychedelic hip hop. This is well, they say that straight up. Yeah, I mean that's sure. But I mean, you know, but this is what's funny is that you have these headphone songs, and then you have a banger like Me, Myself and I, which is so iconic. Everything about this song is good. It's catchy. It's positive. It's a million percent original. Uh, Prince Paul just shines on this even when he's doing those like dj fades with the "Eh, eh, 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 eh," you know it's so great. everything about this song uh that's definitely the standout track for me that that's yeah yeah. i mean it's
2: got humor up there too and
1: Yeah, but this has got humor. It's got social commentary. uh, And it's it's about the group's frustration concerning their forced upon hippie label. It's addressed in a typically dry humor, which made basically the De La Soul trademark. I mean, and it ranked number 46 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of Hip Hop. And the song is included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. That's pretty fucking cool, man. Pretty Printing, printing. And every song um, is different too Like Potholes in
2: My Lawn is so It sticks out But it's such a cool track And
1: The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS It wasn't just a radio
2: station It was a lifestyle Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure
1: right? Get down The wrath of the buzzer WMMS Cleveland the rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles: The Wrath of the Buzzard. P R O H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. You have that available. Yeah, play a little bit of that because I said that's the hardest beat on the record. Play the opening.
0: Yo, something's wrong here. No, not again. Yeah,
2: that it sample. Yeah, that. that. All those guys were pulling all these jazz samples that you'd never heard of in your life, but it made it, yeah, so unique and cool.
1: So we have song sampled, you have Magic Mountain by Eric Burden and War, as well as the signature yodeling and jaw harp on Parliament's little old country boy of 1970s Osmium. The song is notable for being the first hip hop song to be played on Mars By NASA's Opportunity Rover in 2004. Really? That's crazy. That's a real fact. (laughs) All right, here's some randos about this. Uh, Let me get to it. Where is it? There they are. So I don't know if you know this, but in 2020, uh, Rolling Stone created a new 500 Greatest Albums list. A lot of the records that we've been doing have been left off. This album leaped 243 spots to number 103 which is fucking rare. So that just shows you how important uh, this record was. Right. In 2001, Macy Gray felt it was the best record of the past 15 years in a Q magazine review. They're like the Beatles of hip hop. In 2001, Electronic Artist, I don't want to do that one. He's basically saying this is the dark side of the moon. We've gone over that. Um, let's, let's do this. This is a good one. The album's artwork was designed by Tomi Mott. Uh, Toby Mott, not Toby. He describes the process of making the vibrant cover that was ahead of its time. We have come up with the Daisy Age visual concept. De La Soul visit our loft where we lay them down on the floor facing up, their heads making a triangle. We photograph them whilst hanging precariously off a stepladder. One idea being that the cover would not have a right way up. CDs have yet to be the dominant musical format, so the vinyl album sleeve is our most effective way of making a statement. We layer the brightly colored hand-drawn flower designs made with paint pens on acetate over the black and white photograph portrait print, which is rostrum camera copied. This is well before the time of Apple, Max and Scanning. The intent of the design of De La Soul's Three Feet and Rising and LP cover is to be new and bright with the overlaying of the fluorescent flowers and text reflecting a synthetic pop cartoon look, which I think they did. This is a move away from the prevailing macho hip-hop visual codes which dominate to this day. So the the album cover is very distinct from most hip-hop albums from that era, from any era to be. Do you think it can safely be considered iconic? Absolutely. It totally
2: stood out because it didn't look like any other thing that I was selling at that time. You know, every other, you know, most of it, people were trying to look aggressive or cool. Yeah. And this was a totally different thing. This was like a throwback to hippies. Yeah. You know, it felt like it could have come out in 68, you know, summer of love and, and, uh, it just it totally
1: stood out and still does i mean did you have like a big like a big fucking like not what do you call that like you know where all the records are laid out so when people walk in they're like all right here's a new release we had to display is, uh, for this record yeah yeah were people drawn to it were like do you did you have a lot of people bring it up to you and go who's Day Lost? no we
2: sold yeah no i remember that record s- selling well for sure yeah it was the, was it? the next how one was you that? tanked,
1: but, but yeah. The, <laughs> how much you charge for it? Probably $18.99 with that knows, big fucking... And those long boxes. And, oh, my God. You couldn't steal it. It was like... Well, you yes know you, you need could. To, could you? God damn. Why didn't anybody tell me that?
2: <laughs> like, too easily. Really? Wait, how do you do it? If you went into a Tower of Records at that time with a... You know, before they put him in those well then they they took them out of the long boxes and put them in the the, the plastic cases the plastic yeah. cases those are impenetrable but there was yeah. a there was a space where if you had a you know a razor blade or a you know a, a box knife and went in there you could, right. you could fuck up a tower and walk out with you know All right. Before we get into full of CDs,
1: before we get into final questions ran security, I
2: didn't run security. Of course you did. Of course you did. you chased (laughs) some kids into an apartment complex with, uh, you know, some MC Hammer. How much what's the most you ever saw somebody steal? They would always it was never much. We never saw like the backpack kids. We it was always one or two tapes or, or, you know, a CD but no what one who's they... no stealing vinyl that would be ballsy but I mean, uh... that would be ballsy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what was uh what was the most stolen uh inventory i, f- I feel like it was from my department definitely yeah. it was hip hop <laughs> it was it was the young kids either stealing fresh prince or mc hammer oh god the, you know or
1: rob bass or you know I used to work at a Hollywood video. I worked at a Hollywood video and I stole everything. If if VHS was still a a proper format, I would have the greatest movie collection of all time. But, but, you know, people come over. I mean, you want to, you want to copy of Aaron Brockovich? I have seven of them. There's a tower (laughs) documentary where they
2: talk about the tower employees being kind of a a big part of why tower went away because we, we, (laughs) we pillaged, of course, <laughs> of course. I, that's that's. You don't get health insurance, so no, I lived with managers and they pillaged. Like same, same at the Hollywood Video, yeah. Dude. And we, they were the ones telling, dude, don't take that many. Take one or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're loading up, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like, hey, so you want this, uh, do you want this? Do you want this Cat Stevens box set, or can I take it? Yeah. You like, right,
2: that's you tonight. You're like, be subtle about it, posing, and then meanwhile they're like. <laughs> Pouring <laughs> shit into their bag fat. All
1: right. Random questions. These are these are I asked all the guests these questions. Brian, uh, I don't want to keep you much longer, man. This was so much fun, dude. Yeah, it's good. I, I mean talking to you, dude. Um, all right, favorite song on the record. Uh, let's go, buddy. Buddy? Okay. Okay. Least favorite song on the record. Mm.
2: I really like everything. Um, I'm trying to think if there's something that was irritating to me.
1: Something you skip over, maybe? There was a couple. You know what? I, I'll be honest with you. I think this record is, and I'm not saying it's, it's, it's bad up top. It really starts picking up towards the end. Was, when I would have been listening to it over the last couple of weeks, I, I noticed that I would be like, when I'd start the record, I'd be like, eh. And then it would start really getting going like halfway through. And that's where I feel like the bomb tracks are. I might, I might have
2: skipped Magic Number once or twice just because it's so, it's so juvenile and, and not as you know, cool as the rest of the record. Uh,
1: I ask everybody this: What song on this record would you fuck to? <laughs> uh,
2: it's so weird, you know my wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know. I don't know. What like the mood? I don't think I have played this record with her ever. Uh,
1: take it off. Take it <laughs> off. All right. Yeah, I mean, it does give instructions. Right. <laughs> uh, last question, does this record deserve to be on the 500 Greatest Albums list? Absolutely. And yeah. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I don't even think that the explanation we've already set up top, I think you're getting, you're getting innovators, you're getting original uh, artists that uh, took an idea, worked with the right producer at the right time in an era where music was so one direction in its genre. And then you have these guys come out and you say, nah, this is, there's a whole nother group of people um, they set that the really table for
2: a tribe and, and bands that weren't even part of native tongues, like the roots. I don't know that there would be the roots if there wasn't day law first. Oh, oh because 100%. The, roots, the roots were backpack, you know, rappers. And, and so like most deaf even uh, Talib leave, probably most deaf would be around Def. if De law hadn't been around
1: yeah I think you can hear a lot of Black star uh in this record. You can definitely hear most deaf in in all the music and his lyrics and his positivity. you know he's more he's kind of a combination i think of that public enemy where he does have a message and he does she's trying to correct the wrongs in the yeah. world, but there is still that underlying love that you get from artists like de la soul and q tip and Fife dog that i mean. Like I honestly, Kendrick Lamar, I could I could imagine him being, especially with the record uh, to pimp a butterfly. I mean, it's so out there, it's right. so different. How could this? How, whew, I just the whole yeah. How could this not being be? Who, yeah, it's super. Um, Brian, this was great. Anything you want to promote, please.
2: Uh, live dates, BrianPassein dot com. Um, merch, same same thing. <laughs> and then i have my uh my podcast is uh, nerd poker uh which is available everywhere but uh we appreciate patreon sponsors that's what uh, keeps the show alive and yeah keeps, dude uh, ev- keeps playing capatch creating funny
1: yeah yeah show. yeah dude everybody join our patreon too join his and then join ours we need money <laughs> help us help us help you uh, Brian, this was great, man. I can't thank you enough, buddy. Right on. Nice talking to you. What'd I tell you? what I tell you? The one and only Brian Posehn. Follow him on Instagram at Brian Pozane. Follow him on Twitter at TheBrianPozane. Check out his website, BrianPozane.com for all things Brian. And make sure you get that podcast and join his Patreon, Nerd Poker, where comedians play D&D. For listener shout out this week, I want to say a huge thank you to Fletch3. Fletch3, you're the fucking man. At F L E T C H three, thank you for being a part of my family. Now for new music. Who do we got this week? Ah, listener submitted. I love it when I read that. Listener submitted, Devin Anderson. It's Grand Rapids, Michigan-based funk-hip-hop music collective, Avocad Squad. And you're listening to the song Fears off their brand-new album, Sushi Tuesday. God, I love them. This shit rules, dude. And you can find all their links to their music on our website, the500podcast.com. Thank you, Devin, for sending us a song. Guys, send us your music, man. I want to play it. Uh... Send it to 500podcasts at gmail.com. Put the album in. Next week, it's Talking my Heads ben, Week. 1984, stop making head. sense. Do they your homework.
0: Attach, latch. I got a brand new batch. They don't like that's facts. No slack. Pimp tight, attached from the inside. They'll fuck up any kind of night. They'll fuck up any kind of vibe. Playing tricks with your mind. I cannot get it away, I cannot get it away. Ah! Hey, I, I cannot get it away, I cannot get it away, Ah! Hey, I, I hear what never was said. I feel the unknown with the fizz in my head. They attach and they latch, and they'll take over fraction by fraction. If you hang about that action, they don't make they move. And that's fine with you. Then I guess it's cool, I mean, they are self-created. I made it, even though I hate it, self-produced, induced by that cool shit, made of fierce, your ass useless, and I, I cannot get it away, I cannot get it away, I, I cannot get it away, I cannot get it away, I, I hear what never was saying I feel the unknown with fears in my head. Get out of my mind